This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Let me welcome somebody in who absolutely wants to see a better world. She is a board-certified preventive medicine and public health physician. She's amazing. Uh, we had her on before um, a few, it was about a month and change ago, and she was talking about her, her dad succumbing to COVID-19. And now today I want to have her back because I think she's involved in this vaccine trial. Let me welcome back to the show Dr. Chris Purnell. Welcome back. Good to be here. Good to be here. So much has happened since we last chatted. Please fill us in. Tell us, tell us, tell us what has happened. So as you know, um, unfortunately, coronavirus is still raging. The pandemic is still out of control um, and it's out of control across the nation. And I think citizens, the public is just beleaguered. Um, we're seeing fatigue. I can tell you healthcare workers are fatigued. Healthcare workers have been holding the line for over eight, nine months continuously. And it's a lot, it's taken its toll, but we're into in the winter months, we're in the time that's predicted to be most difficult um, because people are indoors, people are cramped or even crowded indoors. But we do have some bright spots. Um, we do have two vaccines that are right now um, going to be considered for emergency use authorization. Um, one of those vaccines um, that's being considered was sponsored by Moderna. That is the trial that I participated in. So um, I got my first injection the end of August. I got my second injection in the beginning of, of October. It felt pretty mundane and routine. I can tell you when I got the first injection, it felt like my flu vaccine um, shot, just pain and tenderness at the injection site. The second injection was different, however. Um, I got uh, severe fatigue suddenly by the end of the day. So tired, I couldn't get out of my car. Um, I got severe headaches, but that only lasted for about 24 to 36 hours. And then I was back to my baseline. So I'm still encouraged, um, but I'm forever vigilant. You know, I, I don't close my eyes, I'm not sleeping. Um, <laughs> I'm talking about figuratively, but um, a lot has happened, but there's a lot further for us to go. Talk a bit because we've been talking and I've been very uh, forthright in saying I'm skeptical, not skeptical. I just don't trust this government. I don't trust pharmaceutical companies. I don't tr like we're black. We're black in America. What can we trust here? The history is long. It is indelible. It's hard for us to shake that. Um, but you're a doctor. I trust you. Your yes. homegirl, you're from, you know, I, I feel, I know you, I feel like you're not that nurse in Tuskegee. I don't feel that at I'm all. <laughs> no, I know. I know that. I can say that or you wouldn't be on these airways. I don't play that. I don't play that. And as soon as I find out, y'all get ushered out really quickly. Y'all have heard interviews where I'm like, uh, uh, let's go to break. You know, I, I will do that. Chris Purnell, Dr. Chris Purnell, you took the vaccine. Were you nervous about it? Why did you, why did you sign up for this? Okay, so let me preface this with, I've also jumped out of a plane. Um, and so <laughs> if I get something fixed or set in my spirit, and I believe it's my decision and it's for me, you're not going to be able to turn me around. And I can tell you seeing my father die, I can tell you seeing my sister, my sister struggled long and hard to overcome coronavirus. Um, my sister is not back at work. She got first diagnosed in April, the end of April, recently came off a of supplemental oxygen. And 
I just saw so much devastation in my community, black and brown faces, right? Devastated by this pandemic. And being a public health physician, I believe in public health science. Um, and so this was my way to put those two passions together, the passion for my family and my community and the passion for public health. And so I wanted to volunteer. Now, I'm not gonna tell you that my family immediately um, thought it was a good idea. Uh, they said, you know, maybe somebody else can do that. And I said, no, this is my fight. This mm. is the way to live out daddy's legacy. And I'm willing to take this on for community because I'm in covenant with community, you know? And when I say I'm in covenant with community, I do what I do because I'm looking for the best interest of the collective, not just the individual. And I don't know if I got, you know, the vaccine candidate or if I got the placebo, I can only describe what my experiences were like, because it's a double blinded study, meaning the researcher doesn't know. And I don't know. The only person who knows what I got is the person who brought the pharmacist who brought the dose to me to be prescribed. Mm. Um, and so I would do it again. And I think that is a question that all of us who participated asked, would you do this again? And yes, wholeheartedly, I would do this again. I love you. I just want to say that out loud. Um, and, and I think, you know, again, love is an action word. What you see with Dr. Chris Purnell is love. She acted not for her own advancement for us. And because I, I was saying on these airwaves, well, in order for this trial to work, some black people got to be in it. I just know it ain't going to be me, but somebody got to do it. So let no, me sure. just say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The percentage in the Moderna study of black folk, do you know what the percentages yes, of? Yes. Okay. So Moderna actually paused its trial. It paused its trial to increase diverse representation. Um, Moderna ended up with over 37% persons of color represented, roughly 20% um, percent of that uh, Latinos or Latinx, um, roughly 10% of that is African-Americans, Blacks. Now that's better than what they had been tracking and that's better than what some others have done. Uh, what you want to see um, in representation in clinical research in, in particular vaccine trials, you want to see representation that is at least compatible with the representation in the population. So Blacks are roughly around 13% of the population. So you want to see that. And Moderna almost achieved it, right? So um, there is also a thought, a school of thought, that you should see a greater representation based upon the disproportionate impact. So you would want to see even more black and brown persons enrolled because you want to know, will this particular vaccine be e effective in all people? Now, I don't say that because there's going to be some biological difference. I have to be very clear about that and drill down. We need to do away with race-based medicine because it's a fallacy and it's actually keeping blacks and browns sicker than they should be. But what we do know is that the conditions in which you live, work, learn, play, worship, pray, and are born impact your health. So we need to know, does the vaccine prevent infection and prevent severe um, disease in those exposed to those different types of environments? So that's why we need a black and brown representation. And uh, hopefully increasingly as we in medicine, as we in healthcare, we in the academic medical complex, as we demonstrate trustworthiness, we'll repair and build trust with historically excluded and marginalized communities to be able to, to win and earn that trust in a realistic way. I would like, uh, and I'm, I'm grateful that you said it, but I just, I, I just have a question. Uh, so you, you, black people, vitamin D, right. would it be different than white people, vitamin D? Do we need the same amount of vitamin D? If not, when you see those BMIs, our bone density, is it the same as what, you know, like, should we weigh? the same that they say on those charts or should we waste like so is that not 
culturally, used, you know. Right, right. I used to talk about um, body composition and body size and BMI a lot, right? I did a lot of work in community around this. So what BMI is, it's just, it is a best estimate of what a healthy weight would be for a given height. What BMI does not do well or is not as effective with is if you have various different body compositions. So it's just one tool. Another way to think about it, what's your abdominal girth? Like how big is your belly? Um, measuring your belly, because you can have thick thighs, you, you can have buttocks um, and that not be detrimental to your health. It's actually unhealthy fat, right? Or that very metabolically active fat that's found around your heart, found around your organs, and found around your midsection. So BMI is just one thing. So when we look at people and how there are differences in body composition, yes, those may reflect cultural differences. They may reflect geographical differences, but they don't reflect biological differences. That's, that's what we need to parse down and explain. Uh, so for instance, if you see uh, sub-Saharan Blacks and you see Mediterraneans more at risk for thalassemia, sickle cell anemia, on the flip side, there was a conferred protection by having that gene against malaria, right? So through development and, and through the, the evolution of, of man in those different regions, they adapted mechanisms to keep them healthier. Those are not genetic. Those are things that are in response to environment. You see the difference? And so gotcha. when we say that Blacks are inherently different biologically, that's race-based medicine and that's dangerous. Um, when we say that you can see variety or alteration across people of different ethnic groups, that's legitimate, right? Um, you see how people respond to medicines differently. That's legitimate because we even know that our genome, uh, it, it does alter or vary expression in relation to the environment, but we need to move toward more truthful and actual scientific methods because that's what's going to keep people healthy. So, doctor, I, thank you so much for breaking that down because it, it really, at least even in my own mind, clarified some misconceptions that I actually had. And your, I think your example about sub-Saharan African regions and that being an environmental adaptation as opposed to a biochemical or or biophysical whatever um, sort of difference, it, that, that I think that means a lot. Uh, and it, it certainly clarifies a lot for me. I, I'm curious about the time frame for the vaccine trials. I, I literally, I just glanced down at my phone and one of my good girlfriends had sent me one a screenshot of, of Governor Cuomo's uh, proclamation that we should not allow uh, the black and brown communities that were most devastated by this virus to be the last in line. They should be the first. We should employ the churches. We should employ, employ community-based groups. And she was like, is this, a, is, are they trying to get us? Like, she's literally trying to, you know, figure out like, you know, why now are you trying to center black people when you have decentered black people, you know, virtually the entire time you've been in office? That's another political question. That's my comment, not yours. My question for you is what is the typical length of time for a vaccine trial? And how does the length of time that this particular vaccine has been tested, how does that compare to what we would normally see if we weren't dealing with the pressures of a worldwide pandemic and the, the need for a rush time frame? So that's a very important question. And I'm glad that you asked it. So typically you could see vaccine development happen across seven to 10 years, right? So that could be a standard. There's variation among that even. Some vaccines can be de were developed as soon as four years. Uh, what we're looking at, I would let's start it by saying two different factors that allow these particular trials to be developed at a quicker pace. One, 
the federal government put money into the vaccine trial process. The federal government infused $9.5 billion, which removed financial disincentives for drug makers not to have the most efficient process. Um, so for instance, you would work on testing you would get the, the candidate that was the safest and the most effective. And however long that took, that would be a, a process that was exhausted. Then in a sequential fashion, you would begin to work on manufacturing. Because the, the federal government infused dollars, it allowed drug makers to already start working on the manufacturing process while still working on the testing process because there would be no financial risk if the vaccine didn't work. Okay, so why, if you don't have that financial protection, you're not going to start to consider how do you manufacture the vaccine and how do you get multiple doses and distribute it out to people if you don't know it works. But when the federal government put money in, it gave companies that shield, it gave companies that economic shield, that fiscal shield to say, okay, I can put my hands in both pots at the same time, right? So the science was allowed to happen in parallel instead of happening sequentially. That's one thing. Two, we're using a different technology in these two particular vaccine trials. Um, in Moderna and Pfizer, Pfizer is joined with a German company, um, BioNTech. In both of those trials, you're using what's called RMA, R, messenger RNA technologies. This technology uh, has been around for about four decades. Um, it was mainly used in medical research. Research It had not been born out to bring a drug to market or to bring a vaccine to market. So it's not like this, this science was totally new or unknown. It just hadn't progressed to this point that it could be proven to be so effective. So it was, um, it was an opportunity waiting to be happened. So you have the federal government infusing dollars, making the process a parallel instead of sequential, which rapidly shortened the process because otherwise people would take years to think about how to, to distribute and manufacture something. And then you also had this technology that's poised to happen in a matter of days. Once the virus was sequenced, the genome of the virus was sequenced in China, in a matter of days, we were able to, in the US, to design a messenger RNA um, protein that could be injected in a fat soluble lipid a cell could uptake it. It's not the virus. You're not getting infected with coronavirus. It's just a code for a viral protein. It can't infect you because you don't have all the parts assembled to infect you. But if I know the code to what that, what that protein is, I can put it in your body. Your natural immune response will then see it, will recognize it, will begin to have helper T cells, killer T cells, antibiotics. So you have this robust immune response so that when your body gets exposed or if your body gets exposed to the full thing and not just the, the spike protein, it already is prepared and it already can defend itself against it. That's what makes that technology fascinating. We did that in days. We so come up with the code in days. It sounds to me like you just made an argument for a hell of a lot more governmental investment in medicine. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, I make, what I'm making an argument for is, and this is what I always tell, tell people, we need sound government investment. We need government to remove barriers that systems otherwise do not have um, the corporate power or the corporate structure or the corporate will or the corporate incentive 
to do. And in this case, that's what government did. Government removed a barrier that said, okay, I got to protect my, my financial assets. I'm not going to try something that may not be successful. So if you got somebody backing you with all of that money, you're willing to innovate and try. And in backing addition- Backing without strings, backing without strings, because I was talking about Merck, you know, they're, yeah, they're backing without, with strings. Right. Backing without strings. Basically it was. It was like you, you smart people, you people who've been working on this, you, um, you know, scientifically curious people, what would you be able to do if you knew that there were no downside to it? Right. And so also the government put money in, and this is the other thing which allows this process to be shortened. The government put money into helping these drug companies raise very large scale um, trials. Moderna had 30,000 people participating in a trial. That is unheard of. Pfizer had around 45,000. That is unheard of. So you had more than 74,000 um, people exposed through the, this particular vaccine trial um, to see if this actually works and if it's safe. That's what allows the process to be faster because if you look at the science and the New England Journal of Medicine published on this, if you look at the science, most immune mediated side effects to uh, to vaccines would happen in the first six weeks of administration. Mm -hmm. So if I have two months, and this is what this, uh, the FDA required, I need two months of safety data, most likely if there were going to be an adverse or serious medical event, it would have happened. So that's the gamble. That's the scientific gamble that the best thinking said was safe to take. There's still some gamble in that, right? Because I'm going to be followed for two years, right? But what the science has already shown us in the past, that if something very serious or negative were going to happen, it would happen in the first six weeks after administration. Now that's for you as an adult. So I have a two-part question. As an adult, that makes sense within that first six weeks. If we're talking about children, for example, does that bear out the same way? And then if we are thinking about side effects, what, you know, you, you watch those commercials and it's like, you have joint pain, take this. And then there's like the may cause 51 other diseases. Um, if you take it, um, you know, including death. So, you know, make sure your joints really hurt before you take it. What are some of the predicted side effects that the vaccine has been able to uncover? And because you're going to be watched for two years, you know, I have a very different appreciation for what a vaccine might do to my body than like my seven-year-old's body. So was there age diversity in the trials? And, and if so, what were the side effects like for them? Okay, so let's talk about the, the general side effects. So this vaccine is something that we describe as reactogenic, meaning that you can get um, pain at the injection site, you can get redness at the injection site, you can get tenderness at the injection site, you can get headaches, um, you can actually develop a runny nose, you can develop cough, you can develop fever. So it means that, that the part of the response to you taking on whatever that novel agent is, it produces a reaction action in your body. But are those responses, are those side effects with an appropriate reason of a risk benefit ratio? Now you have healthy people who are enrolled in a, in, in a vaccine trial, right? Um, we, we had in particular in, in these two um, drug makers trials, we had people who had stable chronic health conditions, but overall they were healthy, right? Meaning even if you had a diagnosis of diabetes, it wasn't out of control. Even if you had a diagnosis of high blood pressure, it wasn't out of control. I have multiple health diagnoses. And so they had to ensure that I wasn't actively sick or those diagnoses weren't controlled, right? 
So you were able to look at elderly persons. Um, the trials had a, a decent amount of elderly uh, representation. I think Moderna had upwards of about 25% were 65 or older. Um, and the trial also had a decent amount of representation of people who had chronic health conditions. And those were the types of side effects that we saw. Before I enrolled in the phase three, so what I was enrolled in was a phase three vaccine trial. There was data from phase one. And the data from phase one said there were no serious health events to date. Phase two was running concurrently while phase three had been um, mobilized. But phase two to date, by the time I got my injection in August, they didn't have anyone who had had a serious medical event. Now remember that fact that I told you, most reactions happen in that six week window. So the, if you're thinking about worst case scenario, what are the worst things that could happen? If that's not happening at that point, it gives you a sense that the potential benefit is greater in a up more of an upside than the potential risk. Now, the question of, about um, younger people, you had to be 18 or older to participate um, in the vaccine trials and, and rightfully so, right? Because we're, we're dealing with a novel technology. Um, we're dealing with something that was very destructive and you don't normally put children at risk with, that, with those many unknowns unless you have a child with disease and they're participating in some experimental drugs for therapeutics, something of that nature. Um, so, but what you have to be able to do is to extrapolate. So those who are doing the vaccine trials and the research designers have to be able to extrapolate and estimate by the science what would be the likely effect in a, in a smaller person. We're talking with Dr. Chris T. Purnell. Uh, she took the Moderna study, uh, the MRNA-1273, uh, the vaccine. All right, you did it. You recommend that when it comes out December 15th and what, how do we know which one to get? Like, so I'm, I'm like ready to sign up. Cause I said, I'm away for the third wave. You already went through the third wave. So I appreciate you doing that. Cause in my mind, I was like, after the third wave, we should be good. How do I know whether I'm taking the Moderna one or the Pfizer one? Cause I only want to mess with the one that you mess with. <laughs> you sound like some of my family. Um, actually we should take whichever one is available first. That's what you should take. The technologies are very similar. What we know is different between Pfizer and what we know is different than Moderna. Um, and they're not, they're proprietary differences. So they're not necessarily advertising or publicizing these differences. Although I think Moderna is ultimately going to say more about what distinguishes its particular um, vaccine. Um, is their shelf life, meaning how long are they able to be stored at normal or routine refrigeration tem temperatures? Um, otherwise, do they need ultra cold storage? Pfizer's vaccine does need ultra cold storage. Storage. Um, Moderna's vaccine needs to be cold as, as well, but not as ultra cold as Pfizer's. So I'm recommending to people, you take whichever is available first. The science is very um, similar, meaning that the effective rate and the safety profile is exactly similar at this point. What was hap what's happening right now is because Moderna passed, I mean paused, Pfizer got out of the gate before them to the EUA. That's what, and it's a good thing that Moderna paused. And when I say paused, it just, it intentionally sought to enroll more diverse persons and more diverse populations. So Pfizer got ahead of it. Um, and so we, it may bear out that one is more effective in a particular person. Cause remember still an individual, you can have different things about you that makes one thing more, um, more effective than another. But as if you look across a whole population, population wide, there are 
they're all intents and purposes identical. So I tell people you get whichever one is available first to the public. And remember, there are other trials still ongoing. There will be other types of vaccines around coronavirus that come to the market that are not using the messenger RNA technology. One that people are really um, in, in tune with is J&J, Johnson & Johnson, um, because that's, uh, that's investigating whether or not you could just have one dose, meaning one injection, and it's just as effective and it's just as safe as the two. So right now what you're seeing happen as is that Pfizer's EUA is December 2nd. Um, so emergency use authorization, um, uh, like body where they get together and, and review and whether or not decide that, you know, for it to have emergency approval, like it got in the UK, that's December 10th. Moderna's is December 17th. Uh, by December 15th at latest right now, it's projected that Pfizer is going to have doses out. I think within the first week, it's been reported in the press, Pfizer today would have 6.4 million doses ready. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a result of the government allowing people to work on manufacturing while working on the testing. Um, and two, um, by the end of December, we'll probably have about 20 million doses. The only people who are eligible under that emergency use authorization as a priority 1A are healthcare workers and those who are working or living in long-term care facilities. Now, ASIP, right, that advisory um, Committee on Immunization Practices under the CDC released its recommendations and guidelines. And I wasn't surprised that healthcare workers are in that priority one all across the state of New Jersey. You've heard the commissioner in, in the public on press talking about New Jersey is going to be ready to deploy to its healthcare workers. We should we should offer the vaccine to our healthcare workers because they bear a larger risk by exposure by the nature of their work. We should offer the vaccine to those living in long-term care. There are still some concerns about, you know, the very elderly um, and the very frail, will it be as effective? Uh, right now, Moderna's science and Pfizer science saying it, sh it should be as effective, but we'll, we'll bear that out. So there's still a lot in flux, um, but most of it is encouraging to me and we have to all continue to hold the line. Uh, so I've, I've heard by many doctors that a vaccine is not a cure. It's no. not a cure. It's not mm -hmm. a cure. So you can still catch Corona. You can still catch coronavirus. Right. Do can you I have, go, go ahead. Yes. Go ahead, Dr. Purnell. So the FDA, and this is, the science is truly potentially mind blowing. If this messenger RNA science, as it is suggestive of this data, if this proves out, it's going to be a game changer. It's going to be a game changer in how we can treat other conditions like therapeutics, not just vaccines and inter interventions, like can it be curative, right? So um, if, if you think about what FDA said, if you took the vaccine in that population, in that trial population, it should reduce your risk of developing coronavirus or the severity of coronavirus by 50%. Both Pfizer and Moderna's vaccine said they reduced that risk by 95%. That's like unheard of in vaccine science. So for most persons, it should reduce um, infection. In Moderna, they were able to say that nobody who participated in the vaccine arm got severe infection. So they're telling, look, this could be, you know, 100% effective in, uh, against reducing severe disease, 95% effective against reducing any disease, but 100% effective against severe disease. We'll see if that bears out. Um, but that's miraculous. That's, that's on the level of miraculous, right? So if that's true, 
that means that you would have strong protection. We don't know how long the immunity lasts. There That's are studies, yeah, there are studies that are being done. Those studies are suggestive that immunity is at least six months, maybe eight months, and perhaps a year. So that's good. It could mean something like the flu, right? You need to get uh, an injection every year and that you would be protected. Having a vaccine does not mean that you don't have to practice the public health measures and guidelines that keep you safe. And that's what is very important for the public to know. Having a vaccine means that we have more tools in our toolkit, means that we are not powerless, means that in the majority of the population, if the majority of the population takes it, New Jersey is trying to hit like 70% of this population vaccinated ultimately, um, that we would have then developed herd immunity. So it's, it's not a silver bullet, it's just a powerful tool in a toolkit. Dr. Purnell is amazing. Let's come back periodically. Let's check in for, for just because, you know, we can talk about a whole bunch of other stuff because you're brilliant. Dr. Chris Purnell. 